0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Changing Faith podcast. I want to begin by saying thank you. Uh, So many of you have taken time to send emails uh, and not only be encouraging, but raise questions and, and suggest topics and ideas and resources, and it's been so much fun. I started this podcast with the idea that I'd love to share with you, um, some thoughts and some things that have moved me forward in my faith journey, introduce you to friends and other resources that I have found helpful along the way. And uh, your engagement has been so much fun. Uh, this is only the 10th episode. So we're just getting started and all of this is already starting to take off and here we are together. And so if you're listening, you might be thinking, well, I have, um, I have some ideas. I have some things I'd love to talk about or hear talk about. And remember that if I don't know uh, or have a helpful answer to to your questions, then I'm going to bring someone in who can kind of help us think through some of these things and hopefully lead us to better questions. And so you might be listening and think, I'd like to hear about blank, whatever you want to put in that blank. Maybe you're like, I'd love to hear about uh, the relational universe in which we live and how it relates to the art of parenting or, or, or something like that. Or um, you know what I'd love to think about is how architecture can actually impact our experience of the sacred. You know, just stuff that everyone thinks about uh, throughout the day. Whatever it is, whatever question you have, whatever thought you have, comment, topics, send those in and you can send those to me at Michael at michael-hidalgo.com. That is M-I-C-H-A-E-L michael at michael-hidalgo.com. And in the days and weeks and months ahead, we will begin interacting with those more fully. But today, today is episode 10. And we're going to talk about excess and scarcity in our desires. And I want to reflect on these things together And I want to consider how we can take some steps in our everyday life to move beyond the trappings of excess and be liberated from the uh, idea and the mindset of scarcity. And and then consider together, how can we take some next steps to move toward uh, seeing that we live in a benevolent universe that is held together by a benevolent God and, and that this universe is always giving of itself. And so we actually. We're just invited to be receivers of those gifts and actually see that we live in a world of abundance. And so to begin talking about this, I want to start by talking about Saturday mornings. Uh, almost every single Saturday morning for the last 12 plus years, my son and I, we, we go and we get breakfast burritos and we go and we sit near uh, different train yards around town and we watch trains getting built and trains moving up and down the tracks and we hang out and we talk. Um, and, and by the way, I'm often asked, oh, wh- where do you get breakfast burritos, especially by people who live in Denver? Where, where do you go for breakfast burritos? Well, there's only one answer to that question. We go to Santiago's and not just any Santiago's. We go to the Santiago's on Federal Boulevard and 25th Avenue because Santiago's has the best breakfast burritos ever created. You've heard the term farm to table, like talking about different restaurants. Oh, we're farm to table. Um, Santiago's is heaven to table. Like there are choruses of angels singing as you take a bite of their breakfast burritos. And so if you live in Denver and you've never been to Santiago's, you need to go to Santiago's and get their breakfast burritos. If you don't live in Denver, now you have a reason to visit. And so come to Denver, shoot me an email. I will take you to um, Santiago's. I will let you buy me a breakfast burrito. And... With every single bite that you take, I will watch your life change for the better right in front of me, and it will be my great joy to witness that. But I digress. We, <laughs> we were talking about uh, Saturday mornings, burritos, trains, conversations with me and my son. And so more recently, we've started driving around town. So we'll go and we'll watch the trains for a while, we'll eat, and then we'll just start driving around town to different neighborhoods and different little pockets in our city And we found all sorts of interesting places. Um, We've gone into like these old broken down buildings that we've seen and like wondered if these ever gonna be like rehabbed, what's happening here. There's different uh, warehouse um, spaces that we've gone to and um, walked around in those. And some of them, like these warehouse districts are kind of creepy because they feel like they're abandoned on a Saturday morning. And um, as we've done this, we've begun to notice something that happened probably a little over a year ago. And it was these buildings that we saw being built And, and not small buildings. These are new buildings and they're huge buildings, like hundreds of thousands of square feet, several stories tall. And one of the things we noticed is that they were being built without windows. So they were just huge metal and concrete box shaped buildings and when we first started seeing the construction, and we started seeing how big they were, and that they had no windows, we thought, "I wonder what, I wonder what those things are going to be." And, and then one by one, they were completed, and they put signs on them, and that's when we realized, "Oh, these are storage units," and, and it's not like there's just one or two of them, not even like four or five of them. There's dozens of them. One of the areas that we we've been in, there's actually the same company has two storage units five blocks away from each other. And their competitor has built a storage unit right across the street in both of those locations. Hundreds of thousands of square feet of these huge metal and concrete box-shaped buildings with no windows all over the place. And we hear these things and we hear about these massive warehouses that are being built. And we think, well, yeah, no, we have that. They're storage units. Is where you get to put your excess stuff. And in Denver, apparently, it's big business. Uh, and this is normal um, in, in, our, in our mindset because we think we need extra space for all the stuff we accumulate and buy and hold on to. And honestly, few people that I know of really give this a second thought. But the reality is most of us, many of us, if not all of us, We all have far more than we need. We buy more clothing than we need. We consume more food than we need. We make more money than we need. It's excess everywhere. And somehow, even though we have all of this stuff, we are not people who are content. Excess somehow doesn't produce contentment in us. Just the opposite. Excess actually begets excess the more we have, the more we buy, the more we get, the more we want. And this attitude that we have, and this this idea that this is normal, this is fueled by and shaped by the weapons of mass consumption that we take in every day, all day, nonstop. It's called advertising. And advertising, it's predicated in this idea of you don't have enough or you're lacking something. You need something that we have that's going to make your life better. Not too long ago, I i saw a commercial that like basically breaks this down perfectly for us. It, it, I'm watching television. I think I was watching sports or something. And uh, there's this commercial on my television for a new television. And th- and at some point in the commercial, the, the voiceover, the narrator or whatever says, this television will change your life. And he was like, I mean, it was really like this compelling like way of saying it. And you're, you're watching it thinking, this TV, this TV can change my life. The idea being your life needs to be changed. Your life needs to get better. And this television can do that for you. It was such a bizarre statement that when I heard it the first time, I thought to myself i didn't I didn't hear that right. there's no way they just said this TV will change your life. So a little bit later in in the game or whatever I was watching, um, this t- the commercial comes back on and I turned it up to make sure I could hear it. and sure enough, this television will change your life. A TV, a TV will change your life, but this is the messages that we receive all of the time. We, we live in a world in America where we see more than 5,000 corporate logos every single day. I was talking with a friend of mine about this recently and he said, oh yeah, but that doesn't really have any effect. And I thought, really? Seeing 5,000 corporate logos every single day, that has no effect on us. Yeah, no, it has no effect. And I said, all right, let, let's do a little experiment. And someone had done this with me um, before. And so I just borrowed it. I said, let's do this little experiment. And so I said, uh, BMW, the car maker, you know, the logo with like the kind of the white and blue circle and the triangles. And yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I said, okay, give me a profile of somebody who drives a BMW 5 Series. What kind of person drives a BMW 5 Series sedan, like their mid-level sedan? And he was like, well, probably somebody in business, someone who's successful, someone who like, you know, has a big house, makes a lot of money, kind of gives me this profile that quite honestly, you would almost expect. And I said, okay, Um, let's think about the Ford logo, like Ford, the car manufacturer. Um, Think about a Ford F-150 pickup, their Lariat edition. So again, like one of their higher end pickup trucks, Um, extended cab like fully loaded leather seats, the whole bit. Uh, What kind of person drives that? And he was like, well, like, you know, someone probably who works like, I don't know, in construction or like some like development company for like homes or like maybe a cowboy, you know, they need stuff to put back there. And I don't know, they maybe like middle class kind of gives like this whole profile of this person. Never mind, by the way, that a Ford F-150 that I described and a BMW 5 Series are actually quite close in their price point. But I said to him, who informed the kind of person that you describe for each of those vehicles? Did you just come up with that on your own? Or or is it possible that the marketing and the advertising and the commercials and what they tell us say, these are the kinds of people who buy this, those are the kinds of people that buy that? See, those logos are telling us something. They're, uh, they're connected to an idea, a brand, a story, a narrative. And we see more than 5,000 of those every single day. You see, advertising is a billion-dollar industry. And if advertising did not work, they would stop spending the money. And one piece of evidence that advertising is working is that America— represents less than 5% of the global population. So less than one person out of every 20 people alive is American. And yet, the United States uses 33% of the world's paper, 25% of the world's oil, 23% of coal. Um one in less than 1 in 20 people use 27% of the aluminum or as our British friends say the aluminium. And uh, 19% of the copper. And some of you are like, co- wait, copper? Like, what do we use copper for? Well, we use copper for plumbing, for pipes, for pennies, I guess. And, and I suppose um, we're using more copper these days because Brett Favre is doing those really compelling commercials for the copper sleeves. Um, but yeah, 19% of the copper. So we, we are less than 5% of the world's population and we use um, over almost a quarter on average Of all of these natural resources, our per capita use um, of of energy, metals, minerals, forest products, fish, grains, coffee, meat, and even fresh water is so far above the per capita average globally that it's embarrassing. We in America are all about excess and we just want more. We in America, many of us experience radical excess, and yet there are still neighborhoods, like in my city, where one in four children are going to bed hungry, and we still want more. You you see, this way of living, and this way of thinking, and this way of um, being in the world is completely normal. Um, So much so that what is surprising is not excess. Excess isn't surprising anymore. And like, just when we think we've seen it all, there's a whole other level. There are television shows that are dedicated to showing us like mind-bending levels of excesses from boats to, to cars, to houses, to like theater rooms, all these things that you can spend money on. I actually saw one recently about beds and mattresses and I watched it. And some of you are thinking, wait, wait, you saw... You watched an episode of television about the excess, like, and how much people can spend on beds and mattresses. Yes, I watched it. And not only did I watch it, I was, like, riveted. I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, and, and there was one, like, mattress bed set, just the bed, that was a million dollars. And some of you are thinking, like, wait, wait, a mattress for a million dollars? Okay, that's over the top. And so, you know, we might be a little surprised by that level of excess, but I think that there's something that's more surprising for us than excess, and that is simplicity and self-control and going without. It's the stories of people who live far below their means, people who choose less, people who understand that they don't need more, that people don't even need half as much Uh, 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 Is what we're told that we do need. Uh, There's a friend of mine actually who lives this way and I find it so compelling and and so surprising because he's actually worth a lot of money. And if I lined a hundred people up and said to you, I want you to point out the guy who's worth a significant amount of money, I bet that you would probably choose him like last every single time because he just doesn't, he doesn't, quote fit the part or look the part because he doesn't participate in excess you see he's found joy outside of excess he's found joy outside of amassing possessions he's he's learned that like you don't need to buy more and more and more and what's great is that people who know him um they have no idea that he has money um and, and this this idea of not living in excess it allows him to be incredibly generous. And when people don't think that he has money, he doesn't care. He's fine with that. He doesn't drive the really nice car or live in the really big house or have all the really nice clothing because he has learned the secret of contentment. And what's interesting is his story is the exception to the rule. You see, we are consumed by consumption We have an insatiable appetite. We want more and we tell ourselves we need more and we can't stop. And what is interesting is that in the midst of this pursuit of excess, in the midst of this um, consumption that we are in all the time, we hear some people who will say things like, well, you know, all the possessions in the world will not fulfill us. We hear people who are wealthy who have more than us say things like, you know, you, you, excess will never produce what you think it's supposed to produce. Jim Carrey, the actor, uh, you know, Ace Ventura, Truman Show, he, um, he he would somehow, like something's happened to him. I don't know if you followed his story, but he's kind of like this, like, I don't know, like the Theo philosopher now, um, and, and has really started to reflect on life. And he said, quote, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer, end quote. It, it was almost as though he was saying, listen, until you experience gross excess, you will never actually know through experience that it doesn't produce what you wanted to produce. And so we hear people like Jim Carrey, we hear people say, you know, all the possessions in the world aren't going to make you happy. And yet, there's something in us where we agree to a certain extent. We hear and we're like, yeah, you're right. I should really think about that. But our lives don't really give any evidence that we really actually believe it. Because we keep buying more until we need to rent space on the second floor of the massive metal and concrete box-shaped building with no windows that we call storage units. We can say we know that excess does not produce what we're after, but our lives and our spending and our consumption actually say that, no, we might, we might believe it. And I wonder, is it possible that deep down inside, we actually do, in fact, believe that at some point we will finally amass enough? Is it possible that we believe at some point we will finally be content by getting more? And that someday we'll get to the place where we believe we will have enough. And to get to that place, to get to the place where we think we will find contentment, we will have to get as much as possible. It's almost like like we have to prove that excess and getting excess as a way and a vehicle toward contentment is true. We have to prove that because if it's not, then we will come face to face with the fact that we pursue excess. It's almost like we have to believe this is true because if we're living lives as a part of our life, pursuit of excess is central, then we have to at some point stop and confront the fact that the way we're living is a lie. And, And I'm not sure that any of us want to have to confront the lies and falsehoods that we've given a lot of our life to. You see, the truth is excess and getting more than we need, whatever it is, it will never produce contentment. And it will never lead you or me or any of us to the place where we think we have enough. It does the opposite, actually. Excess produces a feeling of not having enough enough ever see what happens is we ask ourselves okay so if I have this much whatever whatever you have right now like okay so I have this much and I'm still not happy that means I need to get more and so we amass more and more and more and more and then we're still not fulfilled we're still not content we're still not happy and so we think okay now if I have this much and I'm still not happy, then I probably need to get more. And so we amass more and more and more and more, but we're still not fulfilled. And and so we think, okay, now I have this much and I'm still not fulfilled. You see where this is going, don't you? It's like a doom loop and on it goes and on it goes. In this pattern, finally produces a feeling that we will never have enough because if what we have is not enough and we've amassed as much as possible then that that means that not only will we never have enough but there must not be enough out there and the constant pursuit of excess creates within us the opposite of contentment we call this scarcity and scarcity frames much of how we see the world today scarcity this idea that there's not enough for everybody. There's not enough to go around. It it frames much of how we see the world today. Let me ask you a question. When when you see what others have, or you see a friend's Facebook post uh, about their vacation, or you see a photo of a trip that your friends took on Instagram, or you learn about their job, uh, how do we respond? Like, do we do we see their um, post on Facebook and think like, "Oh my goodness, why didn't I go there like you may have just gotten back from a vacation and then you see their picture from their vacation and you think, "Oh I wish I had gone there I, that that would have been so much better or it's a, a it's a photograph that they post on Instagram and you see their new apartment or their new house and you think oh. That is so much nicer than what we have. And so then you start looking at different homes and think, maybe, maybe maybe I need to, yeah, this place is too small anyway. Why did we ever buy this? Why did we ever move uh, out here? Or you hear about their new job and you, you hear about their position or you hear about a promotion at work or you hear about a pay raise and you think, man, I wish I could make that much money. Do you see what others have, what others have experienced and think, oh, man, I wish I could get that. Do you see what others have and and have this feeling inside of you of a discontentment with what you have, what you own, what you've experienced? Or do you see their vacation pictures and think, oh, that's so great that they got to take a vacation too. Oh, we'll have to get together and like talk about our vacations and show each other pictures. I'm so excited to, to be able to hang with them and hear about their time away. Do do you see their Instagram photo and think, oh man, that is a beautiful apartment? That's so great. I got, you know, they just moved in. We should bring them a meal. I'd love to visit and see what they're see what they're doing there. Do you hear about the job or the promotion and think, man, I'm so happy that they're able to do um in their job what they actually love? And I'm so thankful that I'm in a job where I get to spend the best hours of my day doing what I love, whatever that is do you see what I'm saying? Do we, do we see what others have and all of a sudden feel the sense of inadequacy or scarcity or what I don't have? Or do we see what others have? And then does that cause us to be grateful for what we have? You see, I, I think, I think we actually do the former all the time. You know, you're like going to a show, you're going to a rock concert And you're really, really stoked because you got like tickets, like 24th row center stage. And then you get to the show and you see a friend of yours and you're walking in. You're like, where are you sitting? I have 24th row tickets. Like, yeah, man, I camped out for three and a half days and we're front row. And you're like, oh, man, 24th row sucks. Like, you know, this, this idea of like, somebody's always closer. Someone's already down the road, someone's already doing better than you are. They have a bigger house than you are, a nicer car. It's like somehow when, when you are standing there and you hear someone's front row and your 24th row, you almost forget about the joy of seeing the band and the experience and everything else. Have you Have you ever felt like this? It's like walking through business class when you're taking an international flight all the way back to economy. And Something in you just looks at the people in business class and you think this is an ungodly amount of money to be spending on a flight that's gonna only last eight hours, but oh my goodness, I wish I was here. Economy is the worst. Have you ever felt like this? And I point this out because I think it can be a good barometer for us for where we are with regard to the pursuit of excess or where we are in our journey toward contentment. You see, when we're able to hold contentment we can actually experience joy for others. And if it's only, um, our, if our pursuit is only for more and more and more, what will happen is we will find ourselves envious and jealous and wanting what they have. And we can actually find ourselves comparing and competing because, well, they got it this time, which means I'm going to get it the next time. It, it, it's, it's this attitude that, it tells us like, well, you know, there's not enough to go around. This is the scarcity mentality. This this competition and this comparison, this idea of like, we need to get it before they do. This is scarcity. And one thing that emerges with a mindset of scarcity is not only that we don't have enough, but that we, that you and me, that we are not enough. We're not smart enough. I was speaking with my niece when she was still in high school and um, we were talking about GPAs and she's like, yeah, I have like a 4.387 GPA. And I was like, wait, 4.387, that doesn't exist. Like it's fun to talk about, but it doesn't exist. Just kind of like unicorns, super great, doesn't exist. And she's like, no, it it exists, 4.387. And so this is what happens when you take AP classes and she explains the whole thing to me. And so then she gets ready to go to college and she's getting academic scholarships, which, by the way, good for her. She is smart and she's brilliant. And I'm thinking to myself, right now, you're like in the top like 10 of your large graduating high school class, and you're going to go to a university where there's thousands of students that have a 4.387 GPA, and 994 of them are going to be smarter than you are. Like, you get there and all of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm not smart enough. And you see what they're saying? I don't have enough. What What about like all of the magazine covers that you see lining the, uh, the checkout lines in supermarkets? Have you ever seen an unattractive person on one of those? Everyone that's on there is ripped and they're buff and they're photoshopped <laughs> because they are. And you 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 look to the side and you think, "Oh my goodness i need I probably don't need this bag of Doritos probably probably don't need this bin of Oreos I don't need right? you just and you keep looking at them and you think man i'm okay i'm I'm gonna start working out again. Uh, I'm gonna start eating healthier again and and there's this sense of like, well, I'm just not fit enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not good looking enough i'm I'm not enough. I need more." What about maybe you grew up in a world like I did, like in the church where you could never behave well, or you'd always had a wrong attitude that you're not good enough. And so you have to get better. You have to become whatever it is, more holy, more pious. You have to have a better attitude. It's this attitude of scarcity that you and me, we are not enough. What are the places in your life where you would say, I am not enough? What are the places in your life where you would say, well, yeah, no, I don't have what it takes. The places in which we find ourselves comparing and competing with others, where we tell ourselves in this inner monologue, man, if I could only have what they have, if I could only have more. Isn't it interesting how closely linked excess and scarcity are? You see we so often focus on what we have yet to get rather than what we have. And so once we get that, then we'll be happy. Then we'll start living differently. I see this all the time, by the way, with money. Uh, people who say things like, you know, I'll start giving or I'll start being generous when I make more money. And so if I'm making X number of dollars now, I'm not going to start giving it away because it's I won't have enough. And so Um, When I make more money someday, then I'll give it away. And what research shows is actually, no, you won't. If you're not giving when you're making $10,000 a year, you're not going to give when you're making $100,000 a year. I actually had a conversation with with a guy. He's uh, probably early 60s. He's now worth millions. And he told me about his debt of generosity. And by that, he meant, he said, I wish someone had told me when I was in my 20s um, that I should be generous. And he said, because I uh, wasn't making that much money and I just was trying to like nickel and dime my way through life and trying to figure out like what was the best way to grow my wealth. And I never thought about generosity. He said, I actually never learned about generosity and giving and the joy contained in giving until like I was in like my mid fifties, just like a decade ago. And, and now I realize like I have this whole debt where I missed out in my twenties and thirties and forties. I, I missed out on the joy of generosity. And his whole idea was like, don't, don't say when I get enough, then I will, because it won't actually produce that in you. If you're not doing it now, you won't do it then. I mean, think about like, uh, when, when it comes to time, like when, when I get more then I will get, and we start off so often with like, well, I don't know how I'm going to get all of this done. Um, Maybe it's the feeling you have if you're in college, like right at the beginning of a semester, you get this syllabus and you look at it and you think, oh my goodness, there is no way. Or it's how you feel on a Monday morning when you go into your office and you look at your schedule for the week and you think, oh, I have like like 25 hours of meetings and and I have to send these emails and I have to get this project done. And then I'm presenting here. And then next week I travel to this city. and And it's just this stress that we feel and we think, oh, I have no time. And someday I will do these things and I'll have more time. And then I will. um, No, no, you won't. Actually research, there's fascinating research done. And it's this, um, that every human being uh, has the exact same number of hours each week. (laughs) That was was a joke. I don't know if you caught that. (laughs) That yeah, we all have the same amount of time. The difference is not the amount of time we have. The difference is how we choose to use the time that's given us. You can't get more of it. You're not going to have less of it. We all have the same amount of it. And so when we say, well, when I have more time, I will. No, you won't. We need to begin looking at the way we're dealing with the time now. We believe there's not enough time. That's a scarcity mentality. What about relationships? Like, am, am I good enough? Am I likable? Uh, I hear all the time, what's wrong with me? Like, I, I can't stay in a relationship. Well, what if it's not you? What if it's the person that you met? What if it's the kind of person you're pursuing, which is actually not the kind of person that you uh, are able to invest in and spend the rest of your your life with? Notice that in relationships and in failed relationships, oftentimes the bent that we instantly take is, well, I'm not good enough. This is scarcity mentality. There's a great book that explores this at a much deeper level. It's called The Soul of Money, S-O-U-L, The Soul of Money. It's by a woman named Lynn Twist, and she has this great paragraph that I'm going to read to you that explains the way so many of us live our lives with this mindset of scarcity. She writes this, quote, for me and many of us, our first waking thought of the day is I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of we don't have enough time, we don't have enough rest, we don't have enough exercise, we don't have enough work, we don't have enough profits, we don't have enough power, we don't have enough wilderness, we don't have enough weekends. Of course, we don't have enough money, ever. We're not thin enough, we're not pretty enough, or fit enough, or educated or successful enough, or rich enough, ever. But even if Before we even sit up in our bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with the litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack. This mantra of not enough carries the day and becomes a kind of default setting for our thinking about everything. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life, end quote. Is that, is that not an accurate description of so many of us? Is that not explain the way so many of us live and think? And what's so fascinating is how this actually affects us in a holistic way. that that it takes its toll on us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. There was an experiment done at the University of Minnesota in the 1940s. Because what happened in World War II is that when the Allied forces began to get into German-controlled area or area controlled by the Axis powers, they began discovering these, uh, these concentration camps. And it was in those camps that they encountered men and women who were on the brink of starving to death. And so initially, they just brought in tons of food. And these people who were starving, understandably so, began just throwing this food down as fast as they could. And it began to make them really sick because their bodies couldn't process all of the food that they were stuffing themselves with. And, And so in the University of Minnesota, they did an experiment to figure out how to bring someone back from the brink of starvation. And so they had 36 people, all of whom were academics, um, who volunteered to participate in the study so that people in Europe could get the proper nutrition that they needed. And they had 36 of them and they they starved them near the brink of death over the course of weeks and months. And, and what they found out is that this starvation, this uh, the lack of, of, of uh, food, this scarcity, which was at that point real scarcity, it wasn't just physical the phenomenon of, of starving, it actually messed with their psychology and their psychological makeup. They began to figure out that all they could think about was food. All they thought about was food. So you have these um, these academic people and they they talked about how they stopped reading books, ha- having anything to do with academics. And they began reading menus. Uh, they began reading cookbooks. They began reading magazines that had to do with food. Like everything in their mind was thinking about food. And in a way that went beyond ways that were practical, they talked about how they would watch a movie. And after the movie, the only thing they could remember were scenes where there were food or drink in the movies. And they would talk about those things. The findings of this research indicated that scarcity enslaves our mind. Think about the strength of those words. Scarcity enslaves our mind. Because our minds orient themselves fully toward what we believe are unfulfilled needs. I don't have it. I need it. If I get more, then I'll be happy. It's an unfulfilled need. and This research showed our minds orient themselves toward this idea, toward this need. It's it's not just the wish that we had more or discontentment or being frustrated with the little that we may have. It actually begins to change the way we think. Scarcity has the power to rewire our brain. It imposes itself into our thought patterns. And right now you might be thinking like, oh, come on, that sounds extreme. Yes, it does. It sounds incredibly extreme. And this is what research has shown. This is the power of scarcity. You, or you may be thinking, well, those people in Minnesota and the people in Europe, like they were actually near starvation in the death camps. And those who volunteered for the experiment, like they, they were without food for weeks. So like they had actual scarcity. And, and the idea being that we know we're not in such an extreme place. And, and so we're not exactly like them. However, for many of us who live in relative comfort and don't worry about where our next meal is coming from or where we will sleep tonight, we are drenched and we are drowning in excess and scarcity plays in our consciousness to such a degree that over time it does have the potential to possess the same power in our minds, the same power that was experienced by those who did the experiment at the University of Minnesota and the stress and the anxiety in our world that exists because of the pursuit of excess and because of this mindset of scarcity, it continues to steal our humanity from us. We need to learn the secret of contentment. What may be helpful for us to consider is our desires. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about worry and anxiety and the scarcity mentality. He says this, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet, yet your heavenly father feeds them worry. Seek. Don't worry. Seek. The the word there, the word for seek actually speaks towards our desires. It's about what we desire. It's saying desire first, want this, understanding our heart's desire, understanding what we really want, understanding what we're seeking after. This is vital in moving toward contentment. It's understanding what we really want. And think about it. I mean, if I were to ask you, you know, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. (laughs) Oh, that makes me laugh. And you told me what you want, what you really, really want. I want to, I imagine if I said to you, what do you really want? Like, what do you really want out of life? I, I imagine you would say things like, Uh, I don't know, meaningful relationships, depth, like inner peace. You talk about family. You talk about like love and peace in our world. But if I were to follow you around for, let's just say a week, and I watched your patterns, I watched the way that you lived, I watched the way that you spent your time and your money and the way that you connected with people, what would I assume you want? You see, when I say, tell me what you really want, don't give, let's not do this thing of like, well, uh, yeah, no, I really want, you know, family and peace. And let's answer that question. When I say, what, what do we really want? Let's answer that question by exploring our habits and our thought patterns. Because you see, there are the things that we talk about and then there are the ways that we live and shape our lives. And so when we think about this idea of what we really want – Maybe it would be really helpful. Hopefully, it will be helpful to think about our desires, and by by thinking about our desires as first order desires and second order desires. First order desires are our lusts and instinctual desires that grab a hold of us without conscious intervention. Um, they're they're often like immediately gratifying. We want it now. We can't wait. And um, these kind of desires, they're like really primal um, and really, in some ways, they're animal instincts. They're just this like longing, this desire, this like insatiable thing that we have inside of us, these lusts. This is first order desires. But then there are second order desires. And second order desires speak to our essential essential uh, longings and our deep seated desires, these are not things that are about immediate gratification, but uh, we might say these are things that are like of eternal importance. These desires point to our sacredness as human beings who bear the divine image. These are not animal desires. As a matter of fact, animals don't have these desires. This is what sets us apart from, from animals. This is what makes us human. These essential longings that we experience in our life; these are our second-order desires, and it's interesting. As a pastor, I rarely ever meet with someone who wants to talk about how they can fulfill their first-order desires. I never meet with anyone who's like, "Yeah, I have this like instinct and this insatiable appetite. How do I get more of that?" Usually, the people that come and meet with me are people who've tried to satisfy these first-order desires. And what they begin to realize is that I can have all of the things that my first order desires want, my lust and my appetite for more and more and more. And in some weird way, they figure out it does nothing to fulfill my second order desires. It does nothing to to fulfill and bring contentment to my essential longings that I possess as an image bearer. Because you, 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 you re, what we really want is this like connection with somebody, someone who will know us uh, and embrace us, warts and all, and that we get to know, like this is what we really want. This is what I honestly talk with people about more than anything else, is the second order desires. You see, excess uh, says to us, we are slaves to our first order desires. And this kind of thinking, that's less than human. I mean, think about the phrase, and sometimes we we say it comically, but like, oh, I would do anything for, like, what do you mean you would do anything for? You would do anything to get those tickets. You would do anything to have that car. You would do anything. you, You would do anything? And again, I know we sometimes say it in a joking manner, but that kind of talk, that's lower than human. That kind of thinking actually debases the beauty and the sacredness that is yours as a human being, someone who bears the image of the divine. And the good news is we don't have to live like this. You see, we are invited, I believe, to honor our second order desires to live whole human lives, to live lives that are significant, connected, vulnerable, open, and generous. And when we live lives where we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, where we are open, where we practice generosity, even if that means giving out of our poverty, where we are connected with others, where we begin to look beyond ourselves, you see, living this way actually will lead us to what we really want, and that is contentment. You see, it's actually not resisting our desires, which we're often told to do. Don't, don't do that, don't do that, don't, don't look there, don't buy that, you don't need that. It's not no, it's not that. It's not resisting our desires, it's actually paying closer attention to our deeper longings and our deeper desires. It's recognizing that often our first order desires blind us to what we long for, that they they cover over our second order desires which is what we really, really want. And so as we conclude our time, uh, I want us to give us just one next step, uh, something for us to think about, maybe maybe an exercise for us to do just for the next week or two. Uh, and by the way, if you have somebody that you're a- in connection with and relationship with, um, do this with them so that you can begin talking about it and unpacking it at an even deeper level. Um, what I want you to do is take a piece of paper or a journal or some of you are like, man, I love spreadsheets. Okay, great, great. Here's a wonderful thing to do on your spreadsheet. No judgment, by the way, if you love spreadsheets. Um, Make two columns. And and on the first one, right at the top, first order desires. Second column, you know what's coming. Write out second order desires. Um, And then Begin to write like each day at the end of the day, or maybe even several times a day, spend time reflecting on how you see yourself interacting with these two desires. How much time, life, energy, money do you put in the column that says first order desires? And by comparison, how much time, life, money, energy do you put in the column that says second order desires? You see, first order says, you deserve comfort. Second order desire says, you have something to offer the world. First order desire says, you will not be able to live without this. Second order desires say, you can give life by pursuing this. Spend time each day. What are we doing? What are we spending our time doing? Why are we doing these things? And really be ruthless with this. When it comes to like time, for example, are you saying no? What are you saying no to? Or are you the person who gets on Facebook and you have a million invitations and you click maybe on every single one because you don't want to commit to just one because you know you could at least hit three parties that night or three events that night. And if something comes up last minute, you don't want to miss that. So you're not saying no to anything. You're saying maybe to everything and you're frazzled by Sunday night and you have to wake up on Monday morning to go back to work. What are you saying no to? What are the ways that you're actually protecting your time to show yourself that you um, you have enough of it? One of the things that hit me several years ago as a pastor is that I realized that the best gift I could give to, to our congregation was not an extraordinary amount of time. And so I would have days Um, I'd come home like a zombie and my wife would be like, you've got to stop doing this to yourself. I would have days where I would start meeting with people at 9 a.m. and it was like a doctor's office. I would finish, try to finish the appointment by like 9.50 so I could have 10 minutes before 10 o'clock, finish that at 10.50. Then I'd go to lunch at like 11.30 and then I'd come back and I'd have uh, like a half hour to slam on email and then I'd have like a two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock and I'd come home just dead. And of course, when I come home, it's my wife and my kids, and I had nothing left to give them. And I began to wake up to this reality about four or five years ago that the best gift I can give our congregation, it's not an extraordinary amount of time. It's actually um, emotional and spiritual and physical health. And what I've learned is me giving extraordinary amounts of time does not produce spiritual, emotional health. And so, I've, I've learned to balance my schedule so that I can tend to my second order desires. And I've learned that I actually have all the time I need to get things done that need to be done. And I'm learning that if I don't have the time, that may be uh, a sign that I don't really need to do that. If I don't have the time to get something that, well, maybe that, maybe that's the thing that doesn't have to get done. So like when you think about time, how are you spending it? Are you racing around to one thing or the other, or are you making time for the things that really represent your essential longings? What about money? Um, I mean, have you ever considered how you are spending? Have you ever budgeted? Have you ever put things down the line? Are, are you buying things on impulse buys, as we call them? Are you just continuing to be like, no, I don't need to make coffee at home. I'm going to continue to go to the coffee shop, or I'm not going to, and you continue to spend, 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 spend. And then you feel like, man, I don't have any money. Have you considered that? Are you feeling squeezed? How much do you spend without thinking? How much are you giving? What are ways that you can begin to invest your money that is going to give you this deep sense of like, yes, I'm not looking to get something that's going to give me comfort. I'm looking to give something that will serve somebody else. Two columns, first order desires on one side, second order desires on the other, writing out and be ruthless. How am I pursuing these in my everyday life? And the more attention we give to our second order desires, the more we will begin taking steps toward contentment. The more we will begin actually being in a place where we say, I have what I need. See, it's possible that we can learn to see beyond the moment that we can see something bigger. Because when it comes to excess and scarcity and desires, it's not that we dream too big or we want too much. No, we actually, we dream too small and we want too little. And perhaps if we give our hearts to our truest desires, we will learn together the secret of contentment. And so with that, Thank you again for joining with us today. Our next episode will come out in a couple weeks and it's a great interview with a friend and I don't want you to miss it. So be sure to tune in in a couple of weeks and until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.